So, to our first guest, the very patient Tom. Tom is, in fact, we decided earlier, borderline Welsh. He's actually from the area between England and Wales, and I think borderline Welsh is probably fine. Um, beyond that pleasingly tenuous link, he's put a real historical character at the heart of his novel, Constantin, is Tom's third novel, and it opens in Russia in the winter of 1867 with a 10-year-old boy dreaming of escaping Earth and flying to the stars, and I loved this book. Please welcome Tom Bullough. Thank you, Damien. Um, great pleasure to be here. Um, what with rural depopulation in mid Wales, I um, haven't seen an audience of this size for a couple of months, so um, <laughs> it's quite refreshing. Um, uh, the passage I'd like to read uh, comes from the early part of this book, but not so early as it wouldn't benefit from a little bit of explanation. Uh, this is, as Damien was suggesting, um, the story of a fictionalized account of the early life of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was kind of the father of the Russian space program. Um, in 1867, Konstantin, or Kostya as he's called in his um, boyhood, uh, contracted scarlet fever as a result of playing in the snow and lost his hearing almost completely. This is not quite as straightforward a business as as, as one might suppose. Um, he, um, when, you, when, you, when you lose your hearing, it's, um, what, the experience is something perhaps a little bit more like a phantom limb, which is to say that your other senses, your eyes and to some extent your, your sense of touch, for example, through a, um, a, a wooden floor, will produce in your brain um, some sense that you are hearing the sounds that you might expect to hear. Um, in fact, to some extent, when um, people lose their hearing, they don't um, necessarily initially realize that they've lost their hearing at all. If you're talking to somebody you know well and you're in good light, by following their lips, by following the movements of their eyes, you can seem to hear their voice as you would normally expect to hear it. And this is something like the condition that Kostya is experiencing at this period in the book. The only other two things that I'd mention are that um, in Russian folktales, there is a witch-like character named Baba Yaga who lives in the depths of the forest um, in a hut with chicken's legs. Also that the Oka is a river in southern Russia. So, February 1868. They had already changed horses once at Boriskovo when the first light seeped into the February sky. Beneath the leather apron and the thick blankets of the kibitka, Kostya lay with his head on his mother's shoulder and watched the birch trees outside the hood sweeping the clouds with their fine black branches. To either side of them, his three brothers and four sisters were squeezed together on the fresh straw, their smell warm and familiar above the hot, dirty stink of the horses. The big sledge was rolling, shuddering over ruts and rough log bridges, and Kostya clung tightly to his mother's cloak-cushioned hip and her hard, slightly rounded belly. His ear pressed at the delicate skin beneath her chin, where he could hear her voice without even looking at her face. Did you see the little red squirrel, Feckler? That's it, right up there. You know the story about the fox, the hare, and the squirrel, don't you? Yes, you do. 
They stopped for breakfast at a hut so deep in the forest that it ought to have had chicken's legs. Extracting himself from the blankets, Costa watched his mother climb down to the ground, straighten her grey fox fur hat, retrieve the order for horses from a pocket in her skirts, and knock on the door. He looked down a track pristine from the previous night's fall, framed by birches feathered in white, and as a breeze fled among the treetops, he saw avalanches spilling from the branches, each one feeding the next until the trees appeared to be shivering. He heard the soft, rushing sound of the snow. He turned to find a dog spinning across the yard, and when he saw its champing jaw, he heard its bark, and when he saw its flapping tail, the bark became a greeting. In the hot, filthy kitchen of the post house, Maria Ivanovna and her children sat in a line along a bench in the shelf on the side of the stove. At the table, the Jewish postmaster in his long striped coat was smoking a clay pipe, arguing vigorously with a bear-shaped driver with a mass of curling black hair. The smoke in the room stung Kostya's eyes. At the stove, a bundle of shawls concealed an old woman who was coughing convulsively as she shuffled between an empty saucepan and a pot of cabbage soup. Without a glance, she received their slab of frozen porridge, lopped off a lump with the hatchet from the woodpile, dropped it into a saucepan, and turned her attention to the samovar. On the wall beside the door, there was a tariff of the meals that the old woman was apparently willing to prepare. Veal cutlets, read Kostya slowly. Sturgeon patties with sour cream. Roast grouse with salted cucumbers. Chicken a la Pajowski, he turned to his mother. Mama? What's a cutlet? It's a piece of meat, said Maria Ivanovna. Looking him straight in the face, her voice was clear and light above the room's churning murmur. And what's a veal? It was only those people Kostya had known before he was ill who still possessed their normal voices. To understand new people, he either had to put his ear close to their mouth or else watch their lips and their eyes and decipher their meaning that way, which was tricky. Animals were different. They made their noises very much as ever, although even with them he was aware that he helped somehow to conjure them into existence. He could stand in front of a bellowing cow, close his eyes and consign it at once to a distant meadow. With his eyes closed, there was little to complicate the silence. Here in the post house, there was the clack of his teeth as he chewed his bread. There was the gurgle as his tea drained through the sugar lump in his cheek. There were voices, but they were vague, meaningful, only in moments. He might have been sitting outside in the forest, listening to these people through the muffling snow, the breeze and the thick wooden walls. Maria Ivanovna made no objection when, after breakfast, Kostya left his family to clamber back into the kibitka and himself climbed up onto the bench beside the bear-shaped driver, who sat a small crumpled hat on his head, gathered the six reins of the three fresh horses, struck the central main with his short whip, and set out northeast at the gallop of a cavalry officer under fire. Ten minutes earlier, a peasant with an ox cart had come plodding past the post house, but the driver overtook him in a matter of moments, shouting in a thunderclap voice that even Kostya could make out. When the horses hit the untouched snow, he felt the excitement of wrangle in the Arctic. He clung to his seat and squinted against the flying snow and the freezing wind while the horses poured steam like a locomotive and the bell in the arch between the shafts danced and told the forest the long straight track and any other peasants unwise enough not to have collected sufficient firewood back in the autumn that this was a post sledge and would be travelling at speed. Fast enough, yelled the driver, his breath a gale of garlic. No, said Kostya. No? The driver's eyes goggled above cheeks scored with little blood vessels. 
He set about the peripheral horses with his whip. Come on, my little doves, faster, faster. The team was running now, ventre à terre, the muscles flickering beneath their thick winter coats. On his bench, the driver sat as easily as he sat on his chair in the post house, and he continued to talk, although Kostya caught only an occasional word. The boy let his eyes run across the rippling silver of the birch forest. There were patches of blue in the narrow sky above the track. The light was growing, diluting the shadows. He saw thin trunks bowed into arches by the weight of the snow, snakes of snow that hung from the branches to the ground and fat snow piles that looked so much like cows or old women it seemed inconceivable that somebody hadn't come out here to sculpt them. Hi, the driver prodded his shoulder, leant towards him, spoke again. Kostya started. Sorry, it's my hearing. Ah, I thought. The driver tapped his head significantly and continued in a great bass roar. Can you hear me now? Kostya nodded. Such was the stench that, even at this speed, he had to look away to breathe. Where are you going? Vyatka, said Kostya. The devil! Why do you want to go there? It's where my uncle lives. My father's gone there to work. The driver looked at him as if he were a lunatic. Vyatka's the end of the earth. They send criminals there as a punishment. I know. Where are you staying tonight, then? Mama says she wants to go straight to Nizhny Novgorod. Nizhgorod, ho! The driver gave a war cry and attended to his whip. Without warning, the horses burst from the forest into a clearing that straddled an ochre two or three times wider than Kostya had seen on any excursion from Rizan. Beneath the mottled sky, between the blue-tinged shores of the standing trees, the snow rolled and surged against the across the wreckage of felling, revealing in places bushes, stumps, and branches like the arms of drowning men. Above the pointed ears and whirling manes of the horses, the track vanished over the bank and, a moment later, the kibitka plummeted and arrived on the ice where the scars of feet, hooves, paws and sledges converged to the north. A misshapen thatched hut watched them from a prominence, straw plugging the broken panes in its windows, smoke struggling from a black hole in its white roof. The children who had emerged at the sound of the whip and the bell were beaming and waving from the door the hands concealed in the sleeves of their two big coats. For the last two hours of the afternoon, the sun wheeled through the trees around the track, a bloodshot eye following their progress, now staring straight down the long pink ruts behind them, now sliding among the pines and the birches so that their branches sparkled orange, violet, gold. They passed through villages of low, disheveled houses and fat wooden churches whose three-barred crosses leant towards the north. They passed through Malenki, Salino, and as the sun set in Tali, they passed through Muron, its crenellations and hourglass couplers picked black out of the crimson sky. In the night, Kostya lay against the cold wooden wall of the kibitka. Beside him, the voices and faces of the others were lost to the darkness, and so, little by little, he pulled himself around the corner of the apron, out of the hood, and curled between the overlapping planks and Ignat's bony legs his hat pulled down over his eyebrows and the blankets covering his nose. Silent, unmoving above the shivering sledge, the stars hung untroubled by clouds or even the moisture that flooded the air on those summer's nights when he might sleep outside on the grass. Kostya followed the track that lay above their own, conscribed by the treetops. He imagined that the stars were the atoms of some monumental being, perhaps of God himself. He imagined that he was flying through the ether, 
pulled not by horses, but by a skein of swans, and that soon he would arrive on other planets, circling other stars, where he would be hailed Tsar by creatures who communicated not, he thought, by sound, but by means of pictures mounted on their chests, which they could, would use to send messages even faster than the telegraph. There were some versts north of Novoselki when Kostya felt a change in the movement of the horses. Lifting his head, he saw the driver's pistol ignite the bare, lowering trees, accompanied by the first proper sound that he had heard since sunset. He saw in the light of the stars and a rising slice of the moon the horses fighting against their traces, the bell between the shafts thrashing as if possessed. On his bench, the driver appeared to be shouting. In silhouette, he aimed again, and a plume of fire exploded into the darkness, where, as he blinked away the lights, Kostya saw a shadow flitting across the snow, weightless as mist. It was impossible to tell the size of the wolf. It could have been four arshins away or twenty, but as the driver fired a third time, he saw that there were others, some of them weaving effortlessly through the trees around them, some so close that they seemed to be dodging the horse's hooves. It was only with the driver's fourth shot that one of the shadows tripped and, and tumbled, suddenly substantial, and at once the others disappeared. Frantically, the driver threw his whip out over the horse's backs, fumbling in his pockets for more bullets. Kostya looked among the moon-colored trunks of the birch trees. He leant over the side of the kibitka and beyond the hood where his mother was waving and beckoning to him, he saw the wolves swarming on the body of their fallen comrade, the first of them already returning to the chase, gaining on them steadily, a bore of black against the snow. As he looked back towards the driver, Kostya saw the left horse stumble. It recovered at once, throwing its head against the harness, but plainly the wolves had not missed the movement. When the driver fired again, not one of them fell back for the body. Instead, they closed on the tiring mare, condensing as a pack, lunging at her moon-cut ribs like the waves against the sides of a steamboat, while Kostya wondered what would happen if the horse were to fall and meet the kibitka at this furious speed, how it would feel to be catapulted through the air, to be torn apart by those long, arching teeth. Very much. <laughs> the wolves don't get him. I'm just spoiler alert. And there's a lot of cabbage in this book, and there's a lot of snow, but don't let that put you off. Um, now, now, Costia is Costia or, or Constantin. Struggling to say that properly. Um, Constantin. Constantin. Well, I'll how do let you say lead it? on this one? How do you... I will follow your lead. Well, I tend to say Constantin, but that's because Constantin. Um, Badly educated. No, 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 Con Constantin. Um, and so Constantin is a real historical figure and an impoverished aristocrat of Polish descent. I mean, mm. wh wh where did you come across this 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 man or this boy in your in your life? Well, um, in my experience, books have a way of suggesting themselves. Um, ideas will present themselves, which have, on the face of it, no connection with anything that you might know about or um, anything that you might be working on at the time. Uh, so in this case, um, my brother, who's sitting here in the front row, lived in Russia for some years, and I was visiting him in St. Petersburg in February 2000, I think it was. And um, I was passing through uh, the duty-free in... You were, you were um, just passing through, were you? I was passing through, slowly through the duty-free. 
Um, when I set eyes upon a vodka bottle in the shape of a rocket. Um, now, <laughs> well, how sober were you at this point? Yeah, well, after I'd purchased the vodka bottle, which was pretty promptly um, not very, but um, I can't really explain how these things work. But then this is part of the mystery, really. I mean, without the mystery, there's, there's no point in doing it, really. This is the excitement of the whole thing. So I can only tell you that I was possessed with the idea that I was going to write something about Russia and um, space, and I had absolutely no idea what this might be. That sounds like a lot um, of vodka. Russia and space, I'm definitely going to do it. So how, when did you find the figure of, of, of Kostya? What, what, were you, well, what were you reading or actually, what were you doing? Actually, um, because um, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky is such a pivotal figure in, um, well, space history generally, really. In 1903, he wrote a, a paper called The Investigation of World Spaces by Reactive Vehicles. Fifthy title. Learn from Punchy. that one. Yeah. And... Um, which, which basically um, was the first proof that it was possible for man to leave the planet by means of rockets. All of these sort of ideas were his. So you didn't have to look far in order to find him. It's really only been since the book was published that I've realized that nobody else has heard of this guy because he's been pivotal to my life for about 10 years. I mean, he was... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you've spent ten you've spent ten years in this you know with this well, man or chasing him around. I mean, where, where do you find out stuff? He's about been lurking in the corner of the room at least there. for ten years. Yeah. Did you visit Russia again? Did you visit any? Kind I of did. Um, I, I I couldn't say how much that really informed it. Mm. Um, uh, we 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 did quite a lot of travelling around in Russia at various stages. But um, to be honest, I mean, like to take a city like Vyatka, which is where they're heading in this story. Mm. Um, at that time, now it's a, a station on the Trans-Siberian Express, but at that time, it was a place of exile lost in the extreme east of European Russia. It was a, um, it, and the street names have changed, the churches, which were the sort of major landmarks, have been demolished. So there's really only so much benefit that you get out of going to these places, really. It, you, mm. you have to, it has to be a work of imagination. Yeah. In a manner of speaking, I would say it probably, in my mind at least, is more like a sort of amplified version of Wales than it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Surely not that barren. No, I'm teasing, 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 teasing for the Welsh. No, but um, I think one of the things you, you mentioned just now is very interesting is your depiction of, of countryside and of spaces and actually the land. Mm. Russia really is mm. a character in the book, isn't it? I it mean, is, they, yeah. everybody, talk, everybody has a sense of it. And when he goes to Moscow, when he finally gets to Moscow, he meets this kind of washerwoman whom, uh, she's not a prostitute, but she's kind of mm. one step above that. Mm. Um, and, and, and she says, well, she is. <laughs> um, and, he, and he says, you know, where, she says, where are you from? And he tells her where he's from. And it's just this kind of amazing moment where it's, they're in Moscow, they're in the capital, but mm. she, she knows his mother's maiden name. Mm. And it's just... You know. Well, I mean, you know, the reason, the reason for that is that it's, it was, you know, Moscow at that time was very much a, a sort of collection of villages, really. Yeah. And so everybody headed for you know, those places where they might find their own, where they might find their own kin. You know, there's a collection of communities, really. And so, although there's a degree of improbability in that, it's not that improbable, um, because he's, he's, he's focused in on the area where, the, you know, the, the people he... Which is, it's next to the train station, Razan train station, where so all of the people who come from his home area have descended on this area, um... So kind of like, like Valeria's novel to an extent, um, and, and Andrew's also, the world that you're talking about is balanced. There's a point, you know, where the past and the future are, are sort well, of this close, is, aren't th they? This is, this is the whole, um, yeah, this is really the whole point about this book, which is that, um, I mean, if, if you were to reduce it very simply, um, Tsiolkovsky's story to its absolute essence, as far as I see it, this is the son of a woodcutter 
who becomes the prophet of the space age. You're sort of looking at um, a folk is that, tale. Is that what you said to your agent when you were talking to him about the book? <laughs> this is what it is, right? It's like... No, I can say that now. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember how I pitched it at the time. Probably more sexily, but anyway. Um, <laughs> that was quite sexy. Well, do you think? I liked it. Yeah. Um, but it's a, this is a, a time of terrific change. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a time of, in which you've, you've got railways sliding through the last great primeval forests of Europe. You've got, uh, you know, essentially medieval superstitions, even medieval strip farming, which continued in Russia until the, 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 the um, Russian Revolution, um, co coexisting with even electricity after 1873, certainly the telegraph, certainly these, these trappings of, the, of a recognizable world to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do have this, in a, in a way you have concertinaed into a single lifetime, the change of hundreds of years within our own culture, compressed into, into, the, into a single lifetime. And that's kind of remarkable when there are, there are peasants, you know, gathering, you know, wood and, you know, for kindling, and then mm. you've got people traveling on locomotive trains and other people sending telegraphs and going to balls and houses with, you know, kind of mm. amazing electrical lights and sort of innovation. The contrast it, is it, it huge. It is like an amplification. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that um, um, 19th century Russia perhaps particularly lends itself to drama because, I mean, if, if in... You know, if I can, if I can say that drama in, is in some ways a sort of amplification or a distillation of normal life, here you have a place which is superficially recognisable because you have people who, from a Western point of view, perhaps, you know, look like ourselves or they have the trappings of our lives, and yet all of the extremes are so much greater. There are wolves in their enormous forests. There are extremes of poverty and and wealth which we, which you know, e even in Dickens you don't see, yeah. and. Um, and so, in a sense, it lends itself to it lends itself to drama. It lends itself to story because it is just so fantastic. I mean, you can you can you know reading reading about how poor people are, you can really understand why there was a revolution. That kind of yeah, I, it's I, I, disgusting. I, it's, it's fair enough, really. Um, I think I think it's it's you know time's passed, water under the bridge. With well, the lice, you know, I was I was I was clawing myself at points when when I was using it. It's really grim. Sorry, did um, you say clawing yourself? Clawing myself, you know. All oh, right. Yeah. Interesting image. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want. Not not rubbing myself. No, no, that explains a few things. Myself. Yeah. No, I was I was really it was it was very itchy. So, but um, I want to, I want to know that can you can see that as a quote? Can't you? It was very itchy. Um, it, you, you you it's not a big book. It's not it's not it's not a long book. Um, and the point that you end his life. Mm. I mean, it's before he's done some of his work, but mm. you know he's not he's not done his life's work. He's not become the kind of figure that he's going to be. And then you skip forward. How far? What? Hundred years? Um, Nineteen seventy. Yeah, years, kind so of. Yeah, so yeah, in, in the seventies. Sixty-five. Sixty-five. So why why did you end it where where you did, and did you actually write more stuff that you cut? I wrote an entire draft entirely unrelated to this, but a bit inspired by the same original impulse that I threw away. Um, I did cut a lot from this, but I cut a lot from everything that I do. I I um I like writing to be spare and as distilled as possible um, and the result of this is that you can spend 10 years researching something and write a book that turns out at 200 pages um, but I, I do hope that it's 200 pages of, of meat and not 200 pages of uh, oh no there's nothing there's flesh. nothing wasted there's, um, there's nothing wasted in it um, why did I end on that note yeah why did you end there well because I mean you know the rest of the story because you're a geek about it but no no no, no but uh, no but the, the, the point is the, the story is and every single bit of this story 
I would say, other people can disagree with me, but I'd say, every single bit of this story, every single thing that he sees around him, every part of his life, every part of the world is, informs the person he becomes. So what you've got at the beginning is a hearing boy mm -hmm. from a normal, impoverished, okay, sort of middle class, but basically impoverished background who could not expect to have any kind of dreams particularly at all. And what you have at the end is a deaf scientific genius. So what interested me was how this boy became mm. this man. And at the point the book ends, he has become that man. He, he is has, on his yeah. path. And that's the, that's the journey. That's the okay. story that's interesting. Anything else would have been superfluous as well, like I said. Okay, so, and the, the actual ending, which is, I think, I, I have to say, very clever and also very scary because, you know, I... I I didn't know what... That's difficult, isn't it, with the end? Yeah, it's well, always... this is it, isn't it? You see, you might have noticed I've been avoiding this. <laughs> um, really liked it. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite, it was, it's good. It's clever. Question, Sylvia, of course. The, the, the question for people who didn't hear it was from Sylvia, of course. Um, and um, it was basically saying he, Tom has had a very, very career. And by, by his own admission, he's been a journalist, a sawmiller, a T-shirt salesman, mm -hmm. a Zimbabwean music uh, promoter. I think there might be something wrong with that sentence. And a tutor of creative, no, no, a tu a tutor of creative yeah, yeah. writing. So, you know, you've done all these other things. You got to writing when? And how, how, how did that become, you know, your identity, I guess? <laughs> well, um... I first sort of started writing properly when I was in Zimbabwe as a Zimbabwean musical promoter, <laughs> <laughs> which was when I was sort of 22. And um, I was writing travel pieces for that most illustrious of Midwell's music listings magazines, <laughs> Broad Sheep. Um, um, I was it's not really called that, is it? It really <laughs> is, and, it's, and it still exists. And... Uh, if I ever, whenever I visit Africa, I remain the African music correspondent <laughs> for broadsheet. Um, and, um, <laughs> and I have to say, um, you know, if you, if you want to write well, there's nothing like having very little pressure on you and a bit of an audience. And um, broadsheet provided that. Um, I did not feel any pressure from the editorial department of broadsheet. In fact, when I came back, they took me out for a drink to thank me for my, um, my pieces, and I wound up paying for them. You know, you said, I could swear, you said I could swear, didn't you? you, know, you I wound up paying much. for the fucking things, and that's what, uh, yeah, right. I, envis yeah. I just did this weird visual of you with all these sheep in a pub <laughs> somewhere. It's very disturbing. Um, it's the magical realism. Um, thieving forward. So, that, so you did. So you question. It didn't really, did it? Well, um, no, but it, no, but yeah. it was it, it, it was an, it was enough of an answer. So you, yeah. But you moved from London to back back to Wales, kind I of. I never spent much time in London. It wasn't a success. Why no, not? No, I mean all all the way through. I mean, you you why, why you, was you, it name not other, a you name other jobs, but I mean, when I was uh, sort of whatever, yeah, twenty two or whatever. I, I twenty two, twenty three. I started writing. Uh, I wrote the first draft of my first novel, A, um, and. Um, I think that something happened at that point which I can really only um, equate to uh, the first moment when you discover sexuality. It was a, it was a, a moment that ecstatic. And, and after that, nothing really quite measured up. So those various jobs that you've described <laughs> have merely been a means of survival, really. Yeah. Um, the, the although, you know, I mean, of course, they've all been very interesting and probably 
particularly sawmilling, you know, better for my muscles than I'm sitting at a desk. Sawmilling like in the Barocca advert. Like where the you're like, the, you know the advert with the lumberjacks jumping on the lawn? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, like yes, that. Exactly like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly like that. Actually. It's good to have a visual. Yeah. Tom. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. You've invested 10 years in the novel. How well, do you feel at the um, end of it? I, I, I did feel uh, a certain amount of satisfaction. I mean, as it, as it happened, I, I mean, you talked about finishing your novel. I did do quite a lot of editing afterwards, but I did finish the last line on my 35th birthday, which sort of worked out as far as I was concerned. I felt that at 35, you ought to feel that you'd accomplished something, and um, I did feel as if I'd accomplished something. I hope that's not... You know. mm. Too kind of conceited sounding, but That's I was fine. quite I was pleased You're about here. that. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, did, Tom, did you have another question? Yeah. Hmm. Will you then Well, that's my question as well, which is that you say you, you say that you're kind of come you're, you're kind of coming closer to home for your next novel, your fourth novel. You've been in or are you still have you ditched that and you're doing something no, else? No, 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 no. I have come closer to home for my fourth novel. Yeah. Um, I think one of the problems is that you. Um, in this and in the Clawglass, the novel I published before, which is really sort of uh, the central character is kind of a semi-feral child um, living on an obscure farm in Wales. I mean, in, in that and in this, I think you were sort of pushing the edges of reality about as far as it will go. And I look at this one quite often and wonder whether perhaps I'm going to slip into the edge, over the edge into sort of magical realism. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm, you know, you sort of wonder because it, I mean, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that you know, it concludes in Outer Space, this book, and, you know, it's really, without breaking the rules of reality, there's really only so much further out there. But well, they are go, on a really. spaceship. They're not just floating. No, I mean, no, they're not just flat. They're not just, you know, just hanging around, out. You know, no, yeah. you know, they are. Yeah. They, yeah. It is official. Yeah. Um, well, that, uh, that seems like a really good note, actually, on which to end. Tom Bullo, thank you very much. Thank you.